Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. has been a lot of discussion around history um, and the British Empire after the Black Lives Matter protests tore down the statue of Colston in Bristol earlier this year. Now there was a separate discussion earlier this morning on dealing with the question of racism today and how to fight it but I think ultimately the position of black people in this country even the cause for their migration or in the case of America the forced migration and forced moving of black people is obviously linked with Africa's history. So I think there's two broad questions that we need to ask and I'm hoping to answer over the course of this session which is how was Africa plundered and how is it plundered today? Now, within the field of development, development studies, an important question that often comes up is how is it that Africa is so resource rich yet materially poor? And in response to the poverty or underdevelopment perhaps of Africa, there are a few different replies that you often hear from the right wing. Now, one is that Africa is poor because of something inherent in the people, you know, the way they are, they just cannot seem to move forward or progress, overcome things. Two is that Africa is poor because of corruption, bad governance that infects all of the institutions. And the third one you might hear is Africa is poor because of natural disaster. I think the reality, of course, is this is all the same thing and comes from the same viewpoint. And it's based on it somehow being the fault of the African people and that they must be inferior in some way. Therefore, it can have nothing to do with the direct or indirect involvement of other states. And I'll just start by saying that this is not true. So the beginnings of European and British involvement in Africa come from a period where Britain and subsequently much of Europe was transitioning from feudalism to capitalism. In particular, the beginnings of capitalism allowed for more efficient technology and innovation. Britain's naval expansion was a huge step forward. By control of the seas, Britain and Europe took the first steps towards transforming several parts of Africa and also Asia into economic satellites. The evolution of European shipbuilding from the 16th century to the 19th century was also a logical consequence of this period, their monopoly of sea commerce, which comes about. So the rise of capitalism involved then the direct occupation of other countries and indeed practically the whole of Africa, which we'll come on to talk about. So Marx said that it is the colonies which have created world trade and world trade is the necessary condition for large scale machine industry. Now, this concept of world trade and different countries being integrated into one system is an important one. I think that today it's quite hard to imagine life without world trade or indeed a global market, but it didn't always exist. It was erected out of new economic conditions. Now, when we talk about global trade, people might bring up laws, trading regulations, etc. But all of this is a secondary part of the process. 
The global market does not exist because clever people invented it in their minds. International trading laws were a reflection of what had been born. The only international law that existed in this early period was essentially European law, because it was whatever benefited the interests of the European ruling class, which was then the basis for imperialism and these new strong capitalist states anyway. So for example, particularly during the period of slavery, if the African slave was thrown overboard at sea, the only legal problem that arose was whether or not the slave ship could claim compensation from the insurers. So clearly there was no international law from the point of view of all different states and certainly not Africans. Now, the plunder of Africa does not start with direct colonial rule. It starts earlier, as early as the 1470s. In fact, the Portuguese reached what became known as the Gold Coast, which is Ghana. And they called it the Gold Coast because gold is what they discovered. Eventually, trade in humans as slaves became the most profitable work for both Britain and other European nations. So the slave trade was not only brutal for those who were forced to participate in it, but it was also brutal for the development of the African population as a whole, and it completely decimated it, in fact, and this gave a massive impetus to the development of capitalism. Eventually, slavery came to an end. But the abolition of slavery did not mark the end of the plunder of African people or indeed the African continent either. Quickly, new needs developed as the Industrial Revolution was in full swing and there was growing competition between the European imperialist powers. So the Berlin Conference of 1884 resulted in what we now kind of describe and what is known as the scramble for Africa in which European powers conquered 40 African countries at a breakneck pace. Now, empires existed before capitalism. Obviously, the Roman Empire is a famous example of this. But th this idea of empire and the way it worked took on a new form with capitalism. So what is unique about capitalist imperialism is the domination of finance capital and its tendency towards monopoly. The emerging capitalist class was a class that possessed the means of production and invested in industry and production. And out of industrial capital, you have the emergence of finance capital. Once you have accumulation beyond a certain level, you have these two sides, industrialists who produce goods and the finance capitalists who give capital to the industrialists at a cost, with interests, etc. But this is what allowed Britain and France and Holland and other places the ability to directly occupy territories and move around the world, this domination of finance capital. And this is why Lenin described imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism. In imperialism, Lenin talks about capitalist states needing to have economic spheres of influence. And this is what happened partially through the Berlin Conference. They literally carved Africa up. All of the borders that they drew were in the interests of European imperialism, ignoring whatever groups and civilizations already existed. By 1914, 90% of Africa had been divided between seven European countries, with only Liberia and Ethiopia remaining as independent nations. So capitalism's insatiable search for new profits is what led to colonialism. And imperialism today is the highest stage of that. Colonialism did not stop and imperialism started. It is the same system, but one simply developed into the other. Just as slavery transitioned into, transitioned into colonialism, 
the same racist ideas that were used to justify slavery were then used to justify colonialism. And we see this in the white man's burden and ideas that Africa was full of uncivilized Bushmen or however they described it. As the trade in humans became less profitable, super exploitation of the land, resources and people became a more attractive prospect for European capitalists. Now, you cannot mark the start of capitalist imperialism with a date. Yes, the Berlin Conference was in 1884, but we can't look at history simply in this way. It's not the case that slavery was ended by some good natured people. They'd come to the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't do this. And then some other bad people decided to come together to divide Africa up a couple of years later. That's not how history works. That's not how society works or develops. Slavery led to colonialism, which leads to imperialism, which brings us to today. And we have to understand that process. And they won't teach you it like that in history. They say it was different people with different ideas, but that's wrong. It was the same system, the same process and the same logic. And that is how we understand it. Now, although we can't look at specific laws or conventions or conferences as evidence of economic facts, I think we can use it as different points in history that can express the forces that were at play. So the dual mandate, for example, published in 1922, which comes out in defense and speaking about the necessity for new markets for Britain to expand into the world. In fact, its intended purpose was to open up Africa to the civilized world and at the same time open the African mind to civilization. So there are clearly a lot of racist myths surrounding why colonialism happened. But I would say in some cases, when you go directly to the source, you actually find the truth. And one direct source I wanna talk about is Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes is a major figure from this period who you may have heard of. In fact, his statue sits above uh, a college, I think a building in Oxford, and was also a part of, it was also in the university in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, and there was a huge campaign in that uh, in South Africa, Rhodes must fall. Um, and indeed that campaign has, uh, it is also taking place in Oxford and, and there've been a lot of protests around it. This, this figure, this giant of, of imperialism that towers above people and towered above the South African people for so long. Now, Cecil Rhodes um, helped and his, he had a company called the British South Africa Company. Um, and they founded the Southern African territory of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia. And yes, it was literally named after him in case that wasn't clear from his name. Um, in 1895. And he also founded the De Beers Diamond Firm. I, I spoke earlier about how colonial companies have morphed into the same imperialism that we're seeing today and have morphed into multinationals. That diamond firm that Cecil Rhodes created still exists. It operates in 35 countries. And mining takes place in Botswana, in Namibia, in South Africa, from its inception up until the 21st century. Um, it actually controlled about 80 to 85% of the rough diamond distribution. You know, it had a complete monopoly over that. It's changed slightly over the last few years. Competition has dismantled its complete monopoly, but that group still sells approximately 29.5% of the world's rough diamond production. And, and, I, and I think that that's just an astounding example of how these things develop and morph into each other. It also has the same name um, from when it was first incorporated. So there's not even been a, a, a small you know, attempt of trying to 
modernize themselves, I suppose. But I'm going to speak more about, thanks. I'm going to speak more about this later, the way these companies have developed and changed. So what is it that Cecil, you know, why am I using Cecil Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, sorry, as an example of, you know, what was the purpose of colonialism? So um, there's a really great quote that he said that I think really sums this up for us. He said that in order to save the 40 million inhabitants of the United Kingdom from a bloody civil war, our colonial statesmen must acquire new lands for settling the surplus population of this country to provide new markets. The empire, as I have always said, is a bread and butter question. And I think this is a really good summary of how and why the empire came into being. So we can see that the development of European capitalism was part of the same process in which Africa was underdeveloped and was plundered and was super exploited. Another great um, source, I suppose, on, on British imperialism in particular and, and British control of colonialism in Africa is someone called Frederick Lagarde. And he was the governor general of Nigeria. He had many different titles and controlled many different lands that frankly he shouldn't have. Um, in Nigeria, it was from 1914 to 1919. Um, if, you, if you look on Wikipedia, he's, he's got the lovely title of explorer of Africa, which is nice that that is his legacy. And, and he was also the main architect of the dual mandate, which I was talking about earlier. And I think he also explained the purpose, I suppose, of the, of the British Empire and of colonialism really well. So he says, let it be admitted at the outset that European brains, capital and energy have not been and never will be expended in developing the resources of Africa from motives of pure philanthropy that Europe is in Africa for the mutual benefit of her own industrial classes. So here, you know, we have it from the horse's mouth. It was not in the interests of philanthropy, despite the way it does try to be twisted even today by the apologists of imperialism and capitalism that, oh no, we went there to do good things and to build roads and, and whatnot. It's, it's a complete lie and we have to point that out after using first slavery, after using slaves as a steroid injection for the birth of capitalism, the emerging industrial revolution needed more resource and more markets and materials such as copper, cotton, rubber, palm oil, cocoa, diamonds, tea, tin, there's many, many more, were incredibly important, something that European industry was growing more and more dependent on. And so the European ruling class and the British ruling class needed these resources and had and were willing to go to extreme lengths to acquire them. So they used the native peasants and workers in these African states to extract this because that was the cheapest form of labor for them. They couldn't exactly ship people over. Slavery, as I've explained, was no longer profitable. For example, the rainforests in Congo had some of the world's best sources on wild rubber on wild rubber trees. And in Congo, there was a brutal system of forced labor implemented. If they refused to work, they would be killed or tortured. They were also known to chop off hands as a form of brutality. Imperial officers would pay the army soldiers for severed hands because it was proof that they had carried out this system of terror that they felt was so necessary. And gum from Africa was also an important part in the textile industry. So you can see how these two things are completely developed, uh, are completely connected rather, the development of European capitalism and the plunder and exploitation of Africa and its resources. 
C.L.R. James, who's a, who's a Marxist, famous Marxist, once remarked that the race question is subsidiary to the class question in politics, and to think of imperialism in terms of race is disastrous, but to neglect the racial factor as merely incidental is an error only less grave than to make it fundamental. And I think what this means is clearly the oppression of black people we see we see still today in the West is linked to slavery, is linked to this process, but it is part of the global system, the global capitalist system, which exploited and used African countries with the same ideological defense that they did for slavery as well. So the idea or myth rather of Africa being full of uncivilized Bushmen is of course a part of this, which I want to address. I think ideas can, ideas can be powerful, but they have to be rooted in something. And in this case, they're rooted in the, this dawn of, of capitalist um, society. And the consequence was actually that entire African civilizations were destroyed rather than going to Africa to, you know, you know, what I've forgotten the quote that I mentioned earlier, open the African mind up to civilization. They did the exact opposite and destroyed any civilization in many places that did exist. For example, in 1897, um, Benin City, which was a medieval city in, in Nigeria, was built to a scale comparable with the Great Wall of China. And it was completely destroyed by British forces under Admiral Harry Rawson. And you can actually see a collection of the famous Benin bronzes now in the British Museum in London, which is which is lovely, of course, for, for those of you who are interested in that. And why did they do this? It's because in this place there were resources such as palm oil, rubber, ivory. Um, and actually, you know, the British watched this state for a really long time and trying to figure out ways that they could, you know, make use of it. One British consul, Richard Burton, actually visited Benin in 1862, and he described it as a place of gratuitous barbarity, which stinks of death. Right. And, and you know, they, they came up with any justification possible when the bottom line is clearly they needed access to the resources and where they refused, where the kind of the native population refused to work with the British on the terms that the British dictated, they simply used brute force. So on this issue of uh, or this you know myth, the racist idea of uncivilized Bushmen, even if they were uncivilized Bushmen, however you define that, it does not justify colonialism. It does not justify the brutal force with which they acted because actually colonialism included the burning down of homesteads and humiliation of different African civilizations and communities. And we have to be really clear about that and first point out the lies and the hypocrisy of, of the ruling class when talking about this topic. So what was colonialism then? Well, as I explained earlier, several of the colonial trading companies that came to dominate had already had already had, sorry, African blood on their hands from participating in the slave trade themselves. In the same way we see ex-colonial companies have transitioned into multinational corporations today. The same took place in the transition from slavery to colonialism. However, there was a bit of a distinction clearly in how colonial economies then went on to work, which I'm going to talk about now. 
So the employee under colonialism was paid an extremely small wage, a wage that was usually insufficient to even keep the worker physically alive, and therefore they would typically have to grow food to survive. And this amplified, this applied, sorry, in particular to farm labour, the plantation type, to work in mines, and also to certain forms of urban employment. Now, at this stage, the African undercolonialism, the African working class was also extremely small and very dispersed, and this was due to multiple factors. Whilst capitalism exploits workers everywhere, under colonialism, European capitalists had this additional racial justification to, to act in a particularly brutal way, a particularly unjust way with the African worker. And this was particularly bad in colonies where you had a, a white settler population, where European settlers were in considerable numbers, the conditions for African people was particularly brutal. In Kenya, for example, Lord Delamere controlled 100,000 acres of Kenya's land, and yet native Kenyans would have to carry a pass, a Kipande pass, which is just an identity document, which featured you know, basic personal details, fingerprints, employment history, all of this, they had to carry this pass around in their own country um, just to beg for a pitiful wage. And some of the worst forms of, of brutal exploitation was, was actually found in the southern parts of the continent and particularly in southern, in southern Rhodesia. So the regime was spurred on by racism because it ensured they would continue their profits on a really um, fantastic scale. From the very beginning of the scramble for Africa, huge fortunes were made from gold and diamonds, particularly in Southern Africa, by people like Cecil Rhodes. And we cannot underestimate the profits that were made from colonial rule. So out of the total wealth produced in Congo in any given year during the colonial period, more than one third went out in the form of profits for big businesses and salaries for their expatriate staff, sorry. So the capitalist institution that came um, most directly in contact with an African worker or in, in a lot of cases peasant was the colonial trading company. And um, that is to say the company that's job it was to move goods to and from colonies. And, you know, also Lenin also spoke a lot about the monopolies needing to dominate everywhere to regulate production for the greatest level of profit. And this is what was taking place. The colonies were essentially forcing houses for monopoly profits. And so I'll just give a typical example of how this would work. So if we take Uganda, which um, I have to talk about because I'm half Ugandan, but in Uganda, let's say you had a, a Ugandan farmer who would grow cotton. That cotton would then be transported to a factory, an English factory in Lancashire or you know, perhaps a British owned factory in, in India. And the Lancashire factory owner would also pay his workers as little as, as little as possible. But that exploitation was limited by some other factors. The exploitation of the labor of the Ugandan peasant was unlimited because of the power of the colonial state and the power of the colonial regime, which could ensure that the Ugandan workers were, were made to, to, to labor for incredibly, incredibly long hours for very little. And the other side to this is, of course, the price of the finished cotton shirt or whatever is developed um, would then be so high that if it was re-imported back into Uganda, cotton in the form of the shirt would then have been too expensive. It would have been too expensive for the, um, for the peasant or whoever, the worker to have, you know, bought it back. 20 minutes gone, Fiona. 
Thanks. However, we must recognize that the worker in Britain clearly was not living a life of luxury. The profits of the companies were never intended to give the working class in Britain an easy life. And obviously a high proportion of factory workers were women and children, many of whom were taken out of school uh, at the earliest opportunities to boost the family's earning power. And this aspect of the Ugandan commodities integration into the world market and the Ugandan working and peasant classes being unable to buy it back has not changed. However, there were different types of colonial regimes. Uganda was technically a protectorate of the UK. The British would export in others to be middlemen and administrate. In other countries, such as Kenya, as I said, you had white settler populations. One of the Kenyan white settlers, Colonel Grogan, put it very bluntly, speaking of the Kikiyu, he said, we have stolen his land, now we must steal his limbs. Compulsory labor is the corollary of our occupation of the country. So there's a long history of this brutality as part of the colonization in Namibia, which suffered from German um, imposition. At first, the German presence would negotiate with different tribes, but when this took too long and the fighting started to be focused towards the German regime, um, the Kaiser Wilhelm actually sent uh, new orders and a, and a new leader to this, to this land, this region of Southwest Africa. Um, and uh, this is a quote from the, the new leader who was, to, who was speaking about the people that had basically focused their you know, violence towards the Germans. He says, the Herero people will have to leave the country if they refuse, I will force them with cannons to do so. Within the German boundaries, every Herero, with or without firearms, with or without cattle, will be shot, and I won't accommodate women and children anymore. I shall drive them back to their people, or I shall give the order to shoot them. And thousands of men and women were taken from their homes and shot, and those who escaped were trapped in wastelands without food or water, and they poisoned the wells. I'm just sharing this to show that everywhere you look in the colonial regime, you see brutality. And we have to remember these crimes of colonialism and imperialism. Any and all uprisings against the colonial regime were viciously repressed. But colonialism did come to an end at a certain point. From Ghana all the way to South Africa, we saw incredible movements, incredible revolutions against these brutal regimes. The ruling class at a certain point had no choice but to abandon direct colonial rule. And I think this is one of the greatest processes in human history. However, we must ask ourselves, what did those revolutions achieve? And I don't think there's a blanket approach necessarily to be had here. And I cannot, as a disclaimer, speak about the ins and outs of every African country and their process of decolonization because there were differences. Some movements attempted to overthrow capitalism and tried to plan the economy in a socialist direction. Some of these were viciously crushed, overthrown and suffered from foreign imperialist coups. Burkina Faso is a good example. But some survived, like in Zimbabwe, which I want to talk about a bit now. The colony of the then Southern Rhodesia was ruled by a tightly knit white community of fewer than 250,000 people, but the black population was 5 million. Now the path to independence in the Southern African states was more difficult because of this white settler population, which obviously was hostile to the idea of black majority rule. And there are many guerrilla movements that developed in these places, in these colonial countries, and they were attracted to the Russian and Chinese models as well. But eventually the independence of Zimbabwe was achieved via struggle, 
But the leaders of the guerrilla movement entered into an agreement brokered by the British government known as the Lancaster House Agreement. And this agreement included a 10 year lock on the land issue, which means that no land was to be expropriated and redistributed for 10 years. Now, this is a failure of the movement of the revolution by refusing to solve the land question. The leadership was refusing to solve a fundamental aspect of the colonial regime, which oppressed and exploited the masses. And this problem is what Trotsky took up with his theory of the permanent revolution. The theory holds that in economically backward nations, the bourgeoisie are tied hand and foot to foreign imperialist interests and have no national bourgeois interest of their own. For this reason, this class cannot carry out a bourgeois democratic revolution, the likes of which took place in France in 1789, because the rights to national independence, free and fair elections, and so on, directly contradict its interests as an agent of foreign imperialism. To win these basic democratic rights, the working class can rely on only themselves and their power to transform society through proletarian revolution and a struggle for socialism. And this is based on real events. It was not an abstract theory of Trotsky's that he just thought up one day. This is what the Russian revolution found itself come up against in 1917 and overcame. And this is something that countless movements in Africa found themselves up against and due to a number of different factors were unable to overcome. And so despite these great movements and great colonial revolutions, after decolonization, many of these countries still find themselves trapped in poverty. The colonies suffered from economies that were not diverse, diversified, right? This makes productivity quite difficult. The prohibition of manufacturing industries was a key element of colonial rule and colonial policy. Colonialism essentially restructured their economies for high bulk, low value exportation of commodities. And this lays the groundwork for future structural imbalance. Under capitalism, of course, this wouldn't be the case under socialism. And so between 1945 and 1965, almost all European African colonies, um, except Angola and Mozambique, regained their independence. And the war was a pivotal part of this process. You also saw the rise of African nationalism, which was growing. And there was also the increased brutality of the war that was forcing production of cash crops on a much higher scale. And actually those harsh conditions caused by the war led to the rise in trade unions being created in many, in many countries. In fact, there was a general strike in Nigeria in 1945 that include railway, postal and other government workers, which almost paralyzed the colonial regime. You also had the US supporting decolonization because it would open up the colonies to free trade, right? Essentially, while British and European imperialism was declining, American imperialism was rising. They wanted a piece of the pie. So the World Bank was set up in 1944, just at the beginning of this decolonized process. And since then, the World Bank and the IMF have been responsible for advising and supposedly helping African states overcome debt and poverty. Um, after colonialism, the former colonial masters imposed a sum of $59 billion in external public debt onto these new independent states. And as early as the 1960s, the IMF and the World Bank have been providing credit and, and economic plans for the reduction of African sovereign debt. But in this period, essentially what you see happen is a simple change in face of the imperialists. There was an oil crisis in the 1970s, which led to a rise in inflation and Western institutions started to lend money in increasing levels to poorer ex-colonial countries. 
So the most advanced countries stopped buying primary goods from the developing, developing economies and increased their interest rates on the loans given to them. And this meant that the developing countries were forced to take out further loans with particular conditions, and they were called structural adjustment programs, which in a nutshell was privatization. So for decades, this debt has mounted and paralyzed African states. Thomas Sankara is an iconic African revolutionary who spoke about this matter. And this is a quote from him. He says, where is imperialism? Look at your plates when you eat. These imported grains of rice, corn and millet, that is imperialism. So Africa imports roughly 80% of its food. It's the only continent which imports more food than it produces. It spends billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on importing food. And it also has the debt. Sankara said himself, debt's origins come from colonialism's origins. Those who lend us money are those who colonized us. He also said- He also said, debt is a skillfully managed reconquest of Africa intended to subjugate its growth and development through foreign rules. Thus, each one of us becomes the financial slave, which is to say a true slave of those who had been treacherous enough to put money in our countries with obligations for us to repay. Now, this is not just a problem of the 80s, a problem of, of a long time ago. In 2016, Angola spent nearly six times as much servicing its external debt as it did on public health care. Today, China is the continent's biggest bilateral creditor, right? It signed loans worth more than $146 billion to African governments since 2000. Chinese companies, to be more specific, Chinese companies have invested approximately $5 billion in the Sudanese oil industry. $2 billion has been lent to Angola. $300 million, um, $300 million has been invested in Zambian copper mines. It goes on and on and on. What is this if not an empire? What is this if not imperialism, colonialism? All of this flows from the same thing. And it's not just the debt they have to contend with. We talk about the, the EU, the EU's border tariff and the policies that come with it. I just want to talk really briefly about the common agricultural policy, the cap, which takes up just over a third of the EU budget. And it gives out billions of euros to EU's biggest landowners at the expense of millions of the poorest farmers in Africa. Um, you know, according to the EU, its main goal is helping farmers with income support and the common agricultural policy ensures sustainable rural development according to the specific needs in each EU country. But the translation is that the EU farmers have their produce, you know, huge landowners, they have their produce fixed at a guaranteed price. Um, for example, the price of sugar for an EU farmer is three times that of the world price. And the direct comparison for any independent African state is they lose out on millions and millions of dollars. Around 71% of the EU's agricultural imports originate from these developing countries. But then there's a huge distortion between the price paid to the producer and the price paid by the consumer. And there are countless examples of this. In 2014, in Africa, which you could consider you know, the home of coffee, maybe perhaps in some ways, Africa earned just 1.5 billion pounds from the COP, 
from the crop, sorry. But Germany, by comparison, which is a leading processor, managed to earn nearly double that from coffee re-exports. So what this shows us is that the domination of the metropolitan countries is, if anything, still greater than in the past. The only difference is that the old direct military bureaucratic control by individual colonial masters has been substituted by the collective domination of the colonial world by a handful of wealthy exploiter states through the mechanism of the world market. Ireland was Britain's first colony, colony. And James Connolly, the great Irish Marxist, said it best. He said, if you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organisation of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. England will still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, and through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. And that can definitely be applied to the situation that African states are facing today. So just to come to an end to this and, and um, sum up, I suppose, what next? What, how do we fight imperialism in Africa today? And, and what is the situation? Well, first, I'd say that the African masses are moving already. We saw an incredible revolution in Sudan last year, the overthrow of Mugabe. And we heard about um, the protests in Nigeria that are taking place right now, particularly from the youth. But all of these movements are coming up against the limits of capitalism. And some of you might have come to this session wondering, how can I fight imperialism? How can I be a part of this struggle? And that's a good thing to think, because there is an idea that we should watch passively from the sideline. For example, if there's a revolution in Sudan that has a, a leadership that is bourgeois, we aren't allowed to comment in Britain. And I think clearly no one has the right to lecture, but we are all comrades in struggle. And it is the same fight and the same struggle that is taking place on different fronts. Or let's look at it another way. What would the socialist unification of the African continent mean? It already has immense natural resources that could be used and developed to improve the conditions of life everywhere. The more advanced countries in Africa could cooperate and lend support. But this doesn't make sense and wouldn't be possible with the presence of EU imperialism and Western imperialism trying to destroy that. So we have to take part to destroy our own imperialist powers. Otherwise, these revolutions will be isolated. And if they are isolated, they cannot be successful. And this is part of the tragedy of, um, of Thomas Sankara and Burkina Faso. Britain is a key imperialist power in the world and we can overthrow it. It is literally on our doorstep. If we took over the banks here, we could have a massive weapon against imperialism on the global stage. So the working class today in Africa is bigger and stronger than it has ever been, and it is using class struggle as its weapon. In Zimbabwe, as part of the overthrow of Mugabe, there was a powerful general strike, and we have to amplify and pay attention to that. We saw the same thing in Sudan, that incredible revolution that was spurred on by a general strike. And this is a powerful thing that can spread. You can bet that once the fire of revolution is sparked in one country, it will spread throughout the continent. In fact, the movement in Zimbabwe had a huge impact on Uganda and, and worried the Ugandan ruling class. And Museveni immediately started to raise the wages of the police and different forces in Uganda because he was worried about the impact that the masses in Zimbabwe could have. But I would say Mugabe, okay, he's gone. Museveni's 
all these people represent an old dying layer of the independence movement who once commanded respect is particularly from the youth but this is slowly and they have slowly unveiled themselves to be equally reprehensible reprehensible criminals who are also upholding a system of exploitation and this is a reflection of the crisis of capitalism and the legacy of british imperialism and colonialism there is a burning unrest amongst the masses that is bound to express itself soon and just to finish, I would say that we will see these anti-colonial revolutions return on a higher scale that will finally rid Africa of the stranglehold of imperialism and of capitalism. And that will be part of the worldwide international socialist revolution. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.